podcast with Dan and Scott. Hottest golf podcast, whether you like it or not. Fresh from back in the day when that's a put at the park. 7 a.m. PM special where they played after dark. From the birds to the focus to the losses and the win. Welcome podcast, patron to the show, lead the pen. Get busy golfing or get busy dying. Hottest golf podcast and the swing ain't lying. If you're listening to Leave the Pin Podcast, which I know you are, you know we got to talk about Eagles and Arrows. In 2022, Eagles and Arrows is going in a completely different direction with some great customizable gear. They are doing patch hats that are unlike anything else out there in the market. Anything that you can think of, anything that you want to design and put on a hat, Grant at Eagles and Arrows has got you. Now, they're not going away from all their tried and true traditional stuff. The super soft t-shirts, the premium Cabretta leather gloves, the valuable pouches, everything that you know of and love for the quality of Eagles and Arrows is still available. This is just a new entry into the marketplace. I'm going to tell you what, Grant does it better than anybody else out there. Go to Eagles and Arrows CO on Instagram. That's Eagles and Arrows Co. On Instagram, DM Grant or go to www.eaglesandarrows.com. Send them a message. Any type of product, big or small, any type of job that you need done, with patches. Grant has got you. You want to get stuff for a team. You want to get stuff for a tournament you're running, maybe for a buddy's trip. The turnaround times, astronomically quick. Grant's quality is honestly to die for. There's no one out there that cares more about the product than him. As always, we couldn't be happier to have him as a sponsor, as well as the entire Eagles and Arrows brand. So live life, love golf, get to Eagles and Arrows, Get whatever you need pronto. Evan, what's going on, my man? Hey, Dan. How are you, man? Good, good. Um, So where are we right now? Where are you recording from? I am in the Raleigh, North Carolina area. I am squarely in between Raleigh and Durham in a town called Morrisville, uh, which is part of the Research Triangle Park down here. Uh, and, And unbeknownst to many people, because the airport is RDU, Raleigh and Durham are two very separate cities. Right, right, yeah, Raleigh-Durham airport, and most people fly into there. Um, so listen, so most people in and around, you know, you're kind of like the Piedmont region, not that far from the Sand Hills, and everyone probably bypasses the the research triangle, if you will, to always kind of play golf down in and around, you know, the Pinehurst region. But you guys have some phenomenal golf courses your way yeah you know pinehurst is not that far away if, if anybody listening has taken a trip down here and flown into rdu you know you get the rental car and you can be at some pinehurst area courses in about an hour a little over an hour so not that far down there but you know right in our backyard this is uh you know what's known as tobacco road um the triangle of durham chapel hill and raleigh so you think of those old like basketball rivalries duke and carolina they played last night right and then you've got nc state which is actually uh where i have my degree from but um, you know all of those universities have fantastic golf courses duke university golf club unc finley uh, lonnie pool is nc state's course uh those are you know i, I don't know the rankings off offhand but those are top hundred um you know public courses all of them and then you have a a whole slew of other semi-private and private courses 
Um, Raleigh Country Club is a Ross. Hope Valley over in Durham is a Ross. Those are private, but then you've got some really quality, um, it's, like I say, semi-private courses in the area as well. So um, any given weekend, it's just uh, kind of a, a scramble to get on golf now and, and see what's open because um, so many people are playing and there's so much good golf to be had. So you've got a long history in the game. Uh, you played at a very high collegiate level. Can you kind of walk us through your golf journey? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I would start with kind of where I am now. So I'm a mid-amp player. I'm competitive, um, but I'm not a tour player. Um, I, I think my handicap right now is probably about a plus three. So I'm I'm better than scratch. I'm not a tour player, but, you know, I can go out on a weekend and, and shoot par or better from time to time. But um, yeah, I, my, my golf, my golf journey, um, you know, really started, I think my dad put a club in my hand probably when I was about nine. So maybe a little later than uh, a lot of other kids who really got into the game. We lived in the DC area growing up and I played a lot of other sports, was a good soccer player, good basketball player, played baseball. Um, so, you know, he wanted to get me in when, when he thought I had enough, uh, my temperament was good enough to be able to play. And I wouldn't get too upset because I'm very competitive. I've always have been. Um, said, well, let's try this golf thing out. So I uh, put a club in my hand at nine. I made my first hole in one on my 10th birthday and I was hooked. Right. All right. So so you're making you're making some of our older listeners probably a little bit jealous right now at 10 years old, having your first hole in one. And I know a, a ton of our listeners because we've had other exceptional golfers on the podcast that have similar stories. You know, I made a hole in one when I was 17, I was 18, I made my first in college. And then we've got some older listeners here that have going on, you know, 50, 60 years that still don't have one yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. Um, it's funny. I was playing with my, my dad and a buddy of my, my dad's and the thing goes in and, uh, the two of them are just looking at me like, who the hell are you to make a hole in one right now? We've, you've only been playing not even a year. So, um, I'll always remember that. So was that was that was that the defining moment? Was that like you know you took the bait, you got hooked, and and set you off on this golf journey? You know, no, actually, um, because I didn't play a competitive golf tournament until I was fifteen. I didn't play eighteen holes of competitive golf until I was fifteen years old. So, like I said, we we lived in the D.C. area and we moved to North Carolina. Uh, this is probably circa two thousand four. And um, I just went out for my high school team and I'd never played competitive golf, really. Like, I, you know, I play with my dad and we'd go on like little golf trips and whatnot. And I was always a decent athlete, decent player, but never competitively. And uh, so 15 years old, I show up for the high school golf team. Um, I made it. I was the number nine man. Um, and my first match, I medaled. Um, and I was like, oh, wow, this is this is easy. I can do this. Um, and, and so that, you know, and that's where like the competitive, the, uh, all, all the stuff that I had learned from other sports and the love for golf, like really came together and I'm thinking, oh, this is, this is great. This is for me. So, um, I think, you know, one of the things that I didn't realize is, you know, 15 years old, you've got a lot of kids who are also 15 years old who have offers already from D1 colleges. And I'm playing now I'm playing junior tournaments against those kids. Right. And nobody knows who I am. I'm, I'm new to golf, completely new to the area. Um, and, and so come senior year, um, I have, 
I have no D1 offers, a couple D2 schools, a couple NAIA schools. And um, my game really starts to accelerate. Like I won a tournament that would have gotten me some AJGA exemptions, but uh, high school's over for me now. Like it's the spring of my, uh, my senior year and I'm 18 and I decided to go to SCAD, which is a NAIA school. It's, it's a acronym for the Savannah College of Art and Design. Yeah, I know. I know it. Uh, I know it well. I know it yeah. well. down there a bunch. How are you familiar with SCAD? Uh, just from passing it on historical tours of Savannah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, went down there for a visit. They've got a nationally ranked D1 program or did at the time. And, and Savannah is so beautiful. Um, and, you know, they're the the golf program is set up at a private course that's a little outside of uh, Savannah at a place called Wilmington Island fantastic golf club, um, really sold me on the program. The coach was like, you know, you could really be um, a historic player for us. And I was like, oh yeah, this is, this is great. So lasted one semester there. Uh, things didn't work out the way that I had hoped. And um, so, you know, come home after the first semester and have no, no prospects really for playing college golf at that time. Uh, I find a um, a junior tournament in, so we live in Raleigh, North Carolina, I find a junior tournament in Portsmouth, Virginia, probably three hours up there in the Virginia Beach area. Um, and it's, it starts like the day after Christmas, a couple days after Christmas in that holiday break. And I go up there and I play with a kid the first day who's the son of the coach at Virginia Commonwealth University, VCU, in Richmond. And I play with him and his dad's following and his dad's talking to my dad and I'm playing really well. And then the next day he has two sons and the next day I'm paired with his other boy. And so he's there again watching me and I'm still playing really well. And um, he's talking to my dad and my dad's saying, well, you know, he went to SCAD for a semester, didn't work out. He hasn't really got a home, didn't have any D1 offers. Um, so I, I finished my my tournament. Um, I, I didn't win, but I played very well. And uh, the coach, my dad taps me on the shoulder and says, come talk to this guy. I, I, I knew it was the coach at VCU. And he says, you know, do you want to walk on? Basically, uh, we need a we need a five guy. And I said, oh, sure. Yeah, I don't have anywhere to go. I mean, D1 golf is a total dream for me. Um, so hook up with the VCU team. And like I said, this is Two or three days after Christmas, um, school starts the following week, spring semester. So they're we're running through hoops, getting me signed up for classes at VCU. I'm there on whatever January 4th or 5th of 2009 this was and um, uh, qualify for the first spring event as the five guy. And this is a team that's nationally ranked. Um, better than best team in the state, better than Virginia Tech, better than Virginia at the time. Our number one player is uh, Lonto Griffin, who was a junior, and he's on the tour now. Um, our number two player is a guy named Rafa Campos, who has had his tour card at some, some points over the past uh, five or so years. Uh, he's a Puerto Rican guy, and he's probably on Corn Ferry right now. Um, and then we had another kid who also played professionally and they were, I mean, obviously, if you win on the PGA Tour, like, you're a very strong player. And we had two of those guys. So, you know, I'm just trying to get in there and, like, shoot something under 75 so once in a while so they don't have to take a bad score. Um, we end up 
making the NCAA tournament. And, uh, and then my game just kind of hits another level, right? Where, uh, you know, I had some struggles at the NCAA tournament. It was the bright, the lights were a little too bright uh, at that point. And I thought, man, I, I can really, if I really focus here, I can really do something great with my game. So, you know, keep in mind, like I started when I was 15, I'm 19 now, uh, and I start placing some top tens, uh, like in the state am, state open, couple college events, D1 events, thinking, man, this is like, I've made it. I'm, my world amateur golf ranking is up in like the 500s or so. And I'm like, man, I, you know, I've only been playing competitive golf for four years at this point. Like here I am and uh, things are going really well. Uh, and, and that's when things started to unfortunately change for the worse. I got hurt. Uh, I did some things with my swing. I ended up not playing very much for VCU uh, my sophomore and junior years, and then ended up leaving and trying to do it um, kind of on my own. I met an instructor here in Raleigh who uh, I really took to, and it's like, you know, you don't really need college golf. You could just kind of like um, go play mini tour events and, uh, and things like that, because there are so many in North Carolina. Uh, so I did that. I, I left VCU, I transferred, I went home, I transferred to NC State, uh, which is where I got my degree. And I played some mini tour events and you know, I was making, uh, as an amateur, uh, I was making gift card money, which could have been real money. And I was thinking like, well, this could be, I could be doing something with this and 1400 bucks here or 2,500 there or whatever. And, um, you know, it just came to like, it, it takes a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of effort to play in that stuff. Um, and I'm not, getting the same caliber of competition that you would in a D1 college event. And, um, you know, come around 2012, it's just, uh, this is a lot for me. Uh, it takes, it takes a lot of time and effort and, um, you know, I'm out, I'm, I'm burnout. I don't want to do it anymore. Uh, and I told my dad and, um, you know, we were both, it was both like, a in tears moment for us. It was very traumatic. And, uh, Honestly, I didn't touch my clubs from 2012 until 2019, and I so picked them up again. Let's, uh, let's, let's pause there yeah. for, for where you're not playing, because there's, like, for me, as a, as a golf fan, you know, a fan of professional golf, you know, top-tier amateur golf, collegiate golf, there's so much I feel like our listeners would love to unpack. So I, the biggest thing for me is, how you just can't plan life. You know, you can you can plan as best as you can, but some things are are just they just happen. You know, I mean that that's like a magical run. Like just the fact that you get paired with this coach's two kids, you know, back to back days in a tournament, you don't have a college that you're playing. I think first off shows younger golfers that there's not one set way to get to the next level. For sure. Um, I don't think I don't think anybody could replicate that story. Um, but I know there are a million other crazy ones um, just like it in the sense that, like, nobody would believe them if you told them um, how they got to where they are. And yeah, just, because, look, I've I've interviewed tons of people over the last three years for this podcast, and I'm telling you. There's a few that I felt like, hey, that could be turned into a book or something like this. I feel like this could be a Netflix series. 
<laughs> you know, I, I wish that I could stretch it out over a longer period of time, but maybe it's like a two or three part documentary here. Cause really you think about it, like I'm in competitive golf at 15, like learning how to do it. And I'm out of it at 22. I think I was when I said, this is it, uh, I'm done. And so in between was you know, zero to maybe top 500 amateur in the world um, to attempting to not really make it on mini tours, but just to see what it was like. You know, I think a big part of this is you got to have money to be able to do it. Uh, and a lot of guys don't have money and they go into debt and that cripples them for a really long time down the road. But like if you have a, a sponsor, somebody who says, yeah, I'll put up 50 grand for you or 75 or whatever the number is, um, I think that really helps. And I never had that. So when I get to the end there, it's like, I'm kind of borderline here. Played five guy on my college team. Um, you know, 500 amateur is not 500 um, world golf ranking professional. That's there's a vast difference between those two things. Like I'm out. Right. And what's, you know, what's crazy is I think there's so many people out there that don't realize even how expensive it is to play mini tour events. I have a, I have a very good friend down in and around Pinehurst that plays mini tour events. And honestly, there's, there's some weeks where the entry fee is just, you know, too high. He, he yeah, hasn't I, made I, a, a, enough the week before to kind of cover the next week's entry fee. Yeah, I, I listened to the the show you did with Zane a couple weeks ago. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and and he's all the things that he was saying. Those are exactly right. It takes, you know, if you want to play e golf, you're going to pay twelve, thirteen hundred for the entry fee, and and then you know there's all the other stuff that you're not thinking about. You got to go. You got to get a hotel. Um, if you're there, if you make the cut, if you want to play a practice round and then you make a cut, that's what four nights of hotel. Even if you find a a shitty shack for 75 bucks a night that's still 300 bucks you know you may you may not make that if you miss the cut you may only make that if you make the cut right and, and you're paying for for gas for food for all these yeah. ancillary expenses that you you know you get nickel and dime for and you don't realize till maybe the end of the year you put an expense report together and you're like damn i just spent four grand on gas chasing these tours around the carolina region Oh yeah, there are tons of guys, countless, countless stories like that, uh, and and guys just run out of money. Even Lonto, you know, if you Google him, um, I think the first time he won, or maybe the first time he got his tour card, um, was a few years ago, and he had an article in Golf Digest, and he was talking about, um, you know, he had maxed out all his credit cards and he was calling up his coach and saying, like, I, I don't know if I can do this anymore. Um, and, you know, had he not won on tour or had that really good streak of playing really well, here's somebody who's uber talented and just, you know, never would have made a living out of it, would have had to go into sales or insurance or whatever. We have uh, one of my buddies, Steve and I'm, played on the corn ferry tour for a few years is doing mini tours now and he always put it best I, I thought this was a great way of looking at it he said any mini tour golfer is literally you know five rounds away from an enormous break meaning a, mm -hmm. a monday qualifying round right and then four good rounds in a tournament if you were able to get into a monday qualifier and he says that sounds so close you know but 
it's so far away from reality, he said, because those five rounds might might cost you a thousand rounds beforehand that you have to pay for. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the other thing is if you're trying to make it your uh, your living, it's your lifestyle and you're doing it so much. This is the thing that I learned from stepping away from the game for as long as I did, because I'm better now than I was when I was in college. And I know that sounds ridiculous because when you're in college, you play, you play and practice every day. We had the best equipment, best training. You know, we'd go and go and work out with our strength and conditioning coach every morning. Um, practice rounds with, like I'm saying, a practice round with two guys who are now tour pros is very eye-opening because um, the difference in their approach is, is very different from just like, uh, you know, a five or a 10 handicap or even a, a scratch player. But um, it, yeah, it's... Uh, it's a it's a whole different world, man. All right, so you're you're playing good golf. You you get to VCU, and you said your game kind of exploded. And obviously, playing with Compost and playing with Griffin, you know that's going to happen. Some of that's going to seep into you either through osmosis or or through sitting down and picking their brains. What was the biggest jump for you? What was the biggest eye opening moment when you got to VCU that that you feel like took your game to that next level? Uh. Hitting it left to right, it's, it sounds, again, it sounds really stupid, like, oh, it can't be that simple. And there, and there are a lot of probably 10 handicappers listening to this. It's like, I can slice the ball too. But at a competitive level, um, it just gives you a, a degree of control over your golf ball that you don't have when you draw it or hook it under pressure, uh, just being able to hit cuts. And so when I got there, I hit draws and my first tournament, I think my first round of my first D1 college tournament, um, I shot like 83 at this terrible, um, terribly easy flat course in Florida. And my coach comes up to me during the round and he says, "Um, you're not going to you're not going to hit it more than 280 um, today. You're just going to hit these little punch cuts everywhere. And then the next round I shot 73, so 10 shots less. And it was all because I could keep it in front of me. And then I started to see like, you know, you're playing practice rounds with these other guys on the team and it's like, oh, everybody does this. They just hit it further because they're stronger. And then to get in the gym and go from, you know, 150 pounds to 165 or 170 pounds. Um, and it, it makes, you know, that makes a huge difference because then you can, then you're not losing the, the length with the cut. Like the, everybody knows fades go shorter, but when you're, you're stronger and you're able to do that, then it kind of evens out. Uh, and that's the way to play competitive golf. Um, yeah, it, it's kind of that whole Dustin Johnson mindset, right? You, you get, you get away from trying to get the distance because of the draw you beef yourself up a little bit, you know, uh, you know, a la Bryson, if you will, and you play that power fade, which you said I think that's the biggest point is is keep it in front of you, right? Just keep marching on because at that level, your short game is probably very good. If you're ranked in top, you know, inside the top 500, your iron play is very good. And, you know, we all know now through data and analytics that strokes gained off the tee is the most important stat. Yeah, it's true. It's really hard at elite levels of golf. I mean, 
granted, some of these courses they play are ridiculously tough, and some of these pin positions, in, in addition to that, are like, um, I don't think the average person understands just how difficult that stuff is out on tour. But at the same time, those guys aren't making very many bogeys from the fairway. If they're 150 or 170 or 190, like, you know, they're, they're going to put it on the green. And the closer they get, obviously, they're such good wedge players. Uh, if you get wedge in their hand, they're making a lot of birdies. But most of it is bogey avoidance, right? And you can do that by keeping it in play off the tee. If you have to punch out or you have to take a penalty stroke, then you're going to make a bogey. Uh, and those are those are really killer. I mean, you're thinking about at elite levels of golf, making two bogeys or less per round. Like that's kind of mind blowing um, how how tight you have to be to make two or fewer mistakes. Uh, and, and granted, like you said, everybody's short game is really good. So that helps a lot. But getting it in play off the tee is is uh, is number one, in my opinion. Oh, for sure. All right. So let's let's kind of flash forward now back to kind of present day where we're talking 2012 or so. You say you put the clubs away from 2012 to 2020. Uh, what prompted that? Because as you know, as someone that lives in the Northeast and, and has three and a half, four months off for golf, you know, uh, myself, the other listeners in this region of the country, we are just chomping at the bit right now to get out and play. And I yeah. like me personally, I can't even fathom not playing golf for, you know, a month if the weather was nice. So how did that enormous kind of gap in golf history occur? Yeah. I, I mean, I, like I said, I, I really pushed when I was comp playing competitively to, I wanted to be on tour. Like I wanted to be a touring professional and I thought that I was close to being good enough to do that if I if I worked really hard at it and had the resources. Now, um, I got burnt out um, trying to, to push to, to do that. And I think that that is the case for, I mean, it's funny playing mid-am events in North Carolina. Now I'll see a lot of guys that I played high school or even junior golf with, um, but I'll see a lot of guys who just like, where did that guy go? Because I know he still lives around, but he, you know, tournament golf is not for them anymore. And and I, so I think a lot of people arrive at that place. But um, for me, it was burnout. And then um, I just wanted to uh, professionally, like golf is not my profession. I'm not a mini tour pro. Uh, I'm not a club fitter. I don't work in sales in the industry. Like my professional life is totally outside of golf. And I wanted to give myself a chance to focus on that. And it's actually worked out kind of nicely for me because the third component of this is in my early 20s, I didn't have any money to play golf, right? It's expensive. And uh, if you want to go out and, and you're making 30 whatever thousand dollars a year and you want to go out and, and play every day, you're going to be living in the shed. So uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I just I just didn't have the money. Um, I didn't have the motivation and the passion for it. And I think when I came back to it, like I say, uh, seven or eight years later, um, it, everything was tabula rasa. I had a fresh slate. I didn't have any expectations. Um, it was nice to see some of the people that I recognized from uh, my younger days and and know that they were in the same place as I was, just like, hey, let's get out here and play a mid-end tournament. If we shoot 78, like, let's go have some beers. If we shoot 68, then like, yeah, we'll we'll celebrate that and, and talk some shit at the bar later that night. But it's just uh, 
er, when you're when you're trying to make it professionally, at least for me, it was never like that. It was just like grind, 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 uh, and and that gets really exhausting over time. So do you you love it even more now than yeah? Because there's, there's no pressure, man. Right. Like it doesn't matter if I shoot seventy eight or sixty eight. I, I tell you, I um. I was warming up. I, I tried the USAM qualifier this past year. Um, so they make you walk 36 in a day. And like, I, I don't, I'm, I don't have that kind of endurance anymore. Um, that's just, uh, I'm not, I'm not fit like I was when I was in my early twenties, but anyway, <laughs> so I was standing there sweating my ass off, um, on the range and but warming up and a kid pulls up next to me and it's Caleb Surratt. And I don't know if you know who that is, yep, but yep. he's the number one junior player, I think, in the world, at least in the country. Um, and he pulls up next to me and uh, he doesn't he's not a huge kid like and I'm sure he's going to grow. He's only whatever, 17, 18 years old. Um, and he's just smoking it on the range. And it doesn't even look like he's breaking a sweat. His dad's there. His dad's, you know, hit this one, hit that one. Um, you know, when he's, he's hitting all these different shots on call, he, he wins the qualifier that day. Um, I was pretty far from that. Uh, but it, it just was just a reminder that, um, you know, Hey, there are hundreds, if not thousands of, of guys out there that are really grinding to get better. And that's just not like, the, that's not the place that I'm in. Um, you know, I can go out and shoot. Uh, I, I cut a few under par once in a while. I had probably one of my the best rounds of my life uh, this past fall. I shot 65 at Duke in a tournament, um, bogey free. Uh, but like, that's not that's not happening for me every day. There's just as many this USAM qualifier. I think I shot 76, 78. So uh, you never know what you're going to get. But the thing about it is that it's uh, I'm just trying to have fun. And when I forget about that, then it's easier to, to like step away and, like I say, have a beer and kind of remind myself, like, you know, I'm doing this because I love the game, not because I'm trying to turn pro. Well, so that USGA event, you know, didn't work out, but you and your buddy qualified for the USGA four ball, which people remember had replaced the U.S. Pub Links championship um, and, and has been kind of wildly successful. Um, so you and your buddy Garrett end up shooting 66 uh tie this this other group in uh in in wallace north carolina river landing and you're off to the west coast for the usga four ball championship which is you know to me just amazing because the individual events i feel like you know you control everything right but with the four ball you've also got to have you know you've got to be on point that day as well as your partner because it is very rare that, you know, someone's going to carry the entire team on their own. Give us a little bit of, of that experience. Yeah. Um, I mean, starting with the qualifier, I think this is a the perfect illustration of my point. Like we show up, um, we both had to work the day before the qualifier. I think it was on a Thursday. So we, uh, we show up on a Wednesday afternoon after work in qualifiers in October. So lights getting kind of low. We get there, you know, 5 p.m. or whatever. Hit balls for an hour. Don't even play a practice round. Um, I've played that course before, but it's been years. And I think 
probably the same for him. And so, um, you know, we we hit balls for an hour. We go get dinner, go to the Walmart, stock up on Gatorades and whatever, um, drink a couple beers, get up the next morning, and we're out there. He rolls in probably a 20-footer on one. I make an eight-footer on two. Um, we make a bunch of pars in the middle of our round. I think we turned at two under. Um, par 10, 11, 12. He makes a, he hits a par five and two thir on 13. Um, he hits it tight on 14. So we're four under through 14. And, you know, the beauty of four ball two is like, um, you don't have to be on on every hole. And I think that's part of the reason why we made it and why like our, our kind of laissez-faire approach was, was great for that tournament. Cause I counted back and, I think I was responsible for this, our score on 11 holes um, that or we tied uh, and he was responsible for our score on the other seven or we tied. I mean, so that's uh, perfect ham and egg right there. I mean, you, yeah, so, you can't do better. Yeah. So it's it's a uh, it's a beautiful situation where it's like, you know, neither one of us is playing super, but we're we're getting our birdies at the right spots. And I'm thinking, okay, four under through 14, we're probably out of it at this point. But so we're walking to the next tee and we're talking to our playing partners who are in about the same boat. Um, no, we're, we're walking to 16 tee and we're, we're talking to our playing partners about, Hey, what do you think is out there? It's kind of soft. Uh, wind's not really blowing. Um, this course seems gettable. It's got four par four or four par fives, you know, 10 under eight under. And, um, you know, I hadn't looked at a scoreboard and the other, my, our playing partners had their phone out and the guy looks at me and says, do you really want to know? Yeah, sure. Why not? So there's a five under in the clubhouse and you guys are four under. Okay. Okay, we can. We've got three holes left, and one of them is a par five. We can do this. So, um, sixteen is a par three. I hit five iron to twelve feet and make it. Seventeen is a par five. Um, it's reachable, but it's a little bit of a dog leg, and you've got to take three wood up over a corner if you want to get it there. And I didn't really have the shot, and. Garrett kind of did and he waves at it and so we're both sitting there probably about 100 yards um, pins up on a back shelf of a two-tiered green uh, he misses the green with wedge I throw it up there behind the hole and I'm thinking oh this is going to be tight catches the slope and rolls back down probably 45 feet and this thing's got you know three or four feet of break in it at least for me um, he hits a terrible chip, so he's he's making bogey. I'm thinking, well, um, you know, 18 is kind of like if you hit a good drive, you 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 can have wedge in your hand. Uh, roll in the 45 footer on 17 for birdie, and then I'm so uh, I'm so nervous on the 18th tee that I pull my drive into the junk, and I end up making bogey. He has. Uh, eight feet for par on the last and drains it and we tie for first the other two kids are players at unc wilmington which is down near where the qualifier was and uh nobody else got to six under that day and that was that was how we got in 
but um, incredible qualifying experience. And then the tournament itself, I think that was our, for both me and Garrett, that was our first USGA event. And uh, it's pretty amazing the way that USGA events are run. Like I've played in NCAA regionals as well. I've played in some very high level um, amateur tournaments, um, the Eastern amateur, which remind me, I told you that cause I have got a story about the Eastern amateur. Okay. Um, and, and some others. So, uh, but the USGA event, like very well run. Um, we were, we were prepared, but overmatched, I think in the sense that like the, um, the medalist team in the stroke play there out at Chambers Bay was, uh, a pair of rising freshmen, one going to UNC Chapel Hill, um, David Ford and the other going to Duke, Kelly Chin. Um, and, you know, for us as mid-ams who play and practice once in a while, uh, their games are on a totally different level. So uh, we saw some of that while we were there. We didn't make match play, but um, the experience of being there, we played a couple groups in front of um, Stuart Hagestad, who won the U.S. Mid-Am this year. Um, so kind of got to observe him on the range and him on the putting green and um, see, look back and see how he was playing some of the holes. And, you know, that was that was about as interesting for me as actually playing these golf courses. And, and Chambers Bay, obviously, is a, um, is a huge test. But uh, just the whole experience was was something that I'll, I'll never forget. So I started following your Instagram account. We'll give it a shout out. We'll talk about it later too. Golfing down south. Um, honestly, just because it was about golf in the south. Uh, and for me personally, 2013, I just started this love affair with the southeast. That is, it, uh, for the most part, uh, you know, I don't want to say changed my life. That's probably you know too grandiose and, and over the top, but. Um, kind of set some things in motion in my life. So, you know, I was like, oh, that, that's pretty cool. He's from North Carolina. I'll follow it. Um, you know, and and as much as I would love to say I'm on Instagram a lot, I really don't, you know, scroll and search. But the one thing that stood out to me um, as something that, like, I couldn't wait for updates is when you were putting on your Instagram story about playing at Chambers Bay. So now for you playing you know southern golf that had to, i mean did it seem like a moonscape out there how how are those conditions compared to what you're normally used to playing oh 100% um i think starting from the greens and and working backwards like down here greens are bermuda out west they're poana and if you've ever played on the two or even you know you're in the northeast so you've got bent up there um, a really nice bent green and a really nice poana green are two totally different things. And same with Bermuda, because like we've got lots of grain and whatever. Poana to me just bumps all over the place. And it's, uh, you know, it's something that you, I think if you grow up out there, you, you plan for and you, you react to. Um, but that was one of the things that definitely stood out to me as way different. And then in terms of chambers being a moonscape. Yeah. Um, you, cause you get out there, if you're in the Southeast, you've got pine trees and blah, blah, pines. And, um, you know, there are a lot of houses around a lot of these golf courses as well. And with all of those things, you can create targets 
for me, like I like to look up in the air behind the pin, I'll aim at the corner of that house, aim at that tree off the tee, whatever. And there's none of that out there. So you, you got to pick targets a different way. You got to say, well, I'm going to hit it at that, that piece of that hill or that piece of that bunker. Um, and that takes some getting used to as well out there. And then just the conditions, you know, we had a average day for May. I think it was probably in the mid sixties. It was blowing, uh, you know, 10 to 20. There are a handful of holes down there by the water. Um, the one 16 where, uh, Brendan Grace blew it right onto the train tracks and basically lost the U S open. Like that's probably that and the par three 17 that come after it are probably the windiest holes on the course. Um, but then also when you get up to some of the high points like 5T, 14T, um, you know, you really have to play for uh, wind and conditions. And then there's roll too, right? So um, if you hit a, I was, I was almost feeling like three woods were going further than drivers out there because you get the, you know, and I, I, I now again play a a little bit of a draw, so I just get a three wood that gets hot and turns over and rolls for 55 yards. Like you get some of those out there too. So, yeah, the way the game is played is is totally different. Same thing for approaching greens, like trying to trying to bounce them in um, to some of these is that's definitely different than how we play it down south. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it was it was interesting. Uh, I think with a little bit of, of space from the event now, I can say it was fun, but it, you know, being in it and trying to compete and make the cut and get to match play, like it gets frustrating when you, you've got wedge in your hand and you're thinking, oh, I can hit this tight, it ends up being 40 feet. Or, you know, conversely, you've got uh, five or six iron in and you're thinking, well, how the hell am I going to get this close? It's just, uh, it's a totally different thing. Yeah, one of the, you know, and I'm not a good player by any means, you know, I've, I've been scratched and that was another lifetime ago, but whenever I play courses like that, where there's, like you mentioned, no trees in the background, no houses, no, no background at all, I always find it so difficult to trust the number, right? Because I'm such a visual and feel player, so I might have 105 on, on the laser, but there's nothing behind it. And to me, it looks like 140. And I feel like my swing changes when, when I play these courses that are just so open with no background and my depth perception is off. Yeah. yeah depth perception for sure. I, you know, I don't know if you're someone who likes to visualize shots or trajectories. Obviously there's a lot of talk about that, but for me, it kind of, you know, whether I have five iron or wedge in my hand, I kind of like to try to see the window that it's going to come out of as it relates to whatever the background is, you know, oh, this is obviously going to get up over the tree line, or I'm going to keep this below, you know, basically where the limbs on these trees are, and there's none of that. And so it's really, you really have to use your creativity and imagination to be able to create that for yourself at a yeah, place like Chambers Bay. Yeah, and just, just, just the fact that, you know, I think it's so cool. I mean, I, I'm sure it makes it feel super special going all the way to Washington, you know, as opposed to, let's say, a, a course, you know, in and around you where you had to, you know, drive an hour to get there. You know, it makes it seem like it's a big event out there. Yeah. And and honestly, like this, no disrespect to um, Country Club of Birmingham, but Garrett and I didn't even try to qualify uh, this year for um, the next one at CC of Birmingham in Alabama because we were like, I, I just don't know if we can 
top this experience, like if we'd have the same level of enjoyment um, as we did playing Chambers Bay and being out west, it's just it was so, so different and unique and special. All right. Well, that was going to be my next question. You guys plan on doing this for the foreseeable future? So this year, no, uh, we're not in this year's event. You know, we'll we'll have to if we want to do it again, we'll have to go back to qualifying, and I, I think the score will probably have to be lower than sixty six. But um, we'll see if we can give it a shot. All right, tell me a little bit about uh, about this Eastern Am. Yeah, so I, I, you know, you and I had been talking about um, maybe stories about um, some guys that are on on tour now. I, you know, obviously there's there's my college teammates, but I've run into a ton of them along the way. Um, you know, when I was when we first moved to Raleigh, um, I had I started playing high school golf at a uh, at a place where um, in the same conference as Webb Simpson. Webb Simpson's four years older than me. Uh, I was a freshman in high school. He was a freshman at Wake Forest. And then um, Grayson Murray is four years younger than me. Um, so when I graduated high school he he started his next year so um along the way it's been really interesting for me to like be have one or two degrees of separation from some of these guys that you see on tv every week so uh, you know everybody listening probably knows who webb simpson is um you know maybe a few of them know grayson as well uh so you know guys like that have been really interesting but you know also like seeing other guys from afar um that I, you know, I'd never met or didn't know existed. So I'm talking about this one, this one amateur tournament that I went to in my early 20s um, when I was at VCU. And um, it's uh, the way that they do a lot of these. I don't know if they do them this way anymore because of COVID and whatnot. But you show up at a tournament, you get assigned a host family, um, you stay with some people who are members at the course that you're playing or live nearby or whatever. And it's a very like, familial they do they do cookouts and uh, players hang out outside of the course and whatnot and um you know so this one tournament they do like a cookout and then they do a long drive competition i'm not sure what the criteria for getting into the long drive competition is but um you know i did the cookout and we leave we come back and um you know who's won the the long drive oh it's this kid named uh, abraham answer and he's from Oklahoma. And I, I'd never seen him or heard of him before. I was like, okay, well, you know, that's cool. Like big, big country boy from Oklahoma, I thought probably. And it, <laughs> I looked on the leaderboard and this is after the, after the first round, I think they did this and okay, playing pretty well, looked him up in the world amateur, like, oh, you know, he's pretty high up there and good player. And um, so we go, you know, I'm staying at, at one of these, um, these houses with my teammates. So we, you know, we roll back to the the place and um, and and come back the following morning, and we're getting out of our car, standing on the putting green, whatever, and, and um, just kind of yucking it up. And uh, I said, "Do you hear about the kid from Oklahoma who won the the long drive uh, competition?" And uh, he hit it, you know, three forty or whatever. And um, and my teammate goes, "Yeah, that's that's him over there." And I look over my shoulder and it's like this little Mexican kid. And what? What do you mean? Abraham, he goes to Oklahoma like he's a he's got to be a big, big country boy. Right. And no, that's him. 
and I'm doing the double take, and literally this this guy is you know, five five or five six and a hundred and thirty pounds, maybe dripping wet, and he's hitting at three forty, and I'm like, oh my god, this is this is wild! Like you just never know what you're gonna get out here, um, and then you know to, sing, to see him swing it, yeah, even though he's only five five, he can you know, he can get it going at 120 miles per hour if he wants to, or probably more. Um, you don't see that a ton on tour because that's just, that's not his game. He wants to be in the, the fairway. He likes to work the ball and whatever, but you know, he's got it in the tank. So um, I always love telling stories like that about like just, just people that, that super surprise you. Um, yeah. They, they yeah. have a PGA tour bio has him listed at five, seven, one fifty five. Now I've stood next to him and I'm a shorter guy and I can tell you he's not five, seven. Oh yeah. He's definitely not five, seven. <laughs> that, that's for sure. But he can for sure move it. Uh, and a, a player and a half he is. Yeah. Oh yeah. He's um, I, I love watching his game. He's uh, he's really fun to watch. He's one of those guys that makes you think that you can do it too. Like if he can, if he can get out there. But but really, you know, the truth is that you can't do it too. <laughs> right, I was just gonna say you can't. As soon as you hear that ball to club face, right, you start to realize like, oh my man, mine doesn't sound like that. No, no, it doesn't. Yeah, it's a different world. Uh, all right, so Ed, before we kind of get you out of here, let's let's talk a little bit about. Uh, the Instagram account, Golfing Down South, which has, you know, I, I think you're just kind of over a year into this now, correct? Yep, yep. Uh, started it January of last year. Uh, was a was kind of bored, and and I've been playing more golf um, during the pandemic, which has been great. It's really kind of like leveled up my um, my rounds per year, which has been fun. And um, I was playing so much, probably end of 2020. That my wife said to me, well, you know, you're you're going out there so often and taking so many pictures. And, you know, I do um, public relations for a living. So I advise a lot of clients on social media strategy and engagement and things like that. And she's like, well, you get all this stuff already. So um, why don't you just create your own Instagram account? And um, so I did that and we grew it pretty quickly. And then uh, some things happened in my personal life over the last probably six months where I haven't been as engaged as I, I would have liked. But it's been really fun um, to, you know, to meet folks like yourself. And even locally, I feel like I have a pretty strong following that's led to a lot of um, just golf course connections, like um, buddies, new buddies that I can go out and play with and, um, you know, some new new tournaments and um, that I can get into. And uh, so I've just really enjoyed like kind of sharing um, you know, my, a little bit more about my golf journey, what courses look like down here. Obviously the USAM four ball event, um, we, we did a lot of stuff around that and that was really fun. And, um, yeah, just, you know, sharing some things about, uh, my, my technique. Uh, I, I subscribe to, a uh, uh, method, a, a swing theory, uh, from a guy in, who actually is, lives in Australia named Gary Edwin, and he's the coach of a handful of tour guys who are from out there. Uh, Rod Pampling, who's on the Champions Tour, is one of his his pupils, and 
Um, Peter Lonard, I don't know if you remember him from oh, yeah. back in the day, but big, strong guy, uh, very simple swing. Um, used to love watching him. He's another one of his students and uh, actually hooked up with one of Gary's disciples who lived in the Raleigh area um, about the time that I was leaving VCU. And I've just kind of stuck with that and, um, and, and love kind of working on my swing within the um, the theology or the theory rather of um, of the right-sided swing. So that's another thing that I've been trying to share a little bit more about because I think that uh, so many people go off on wild goose chases trying to get better and if they just had a, a theory that they subscribe to or some concepts that they um, could dive a little bit deeper into rather than reading the latest edition of golf magazine uh they'd be better for it well yeah everyone's looking for that quick fix you know and if i can read this one page article by this top hundred you know golf digest teacher it's automatically going to fix me i i have a buddy um it's it's interesting and i i he sees me work on this stuff and he doesn't understand how it works and i say well you know, what are, what are you doing? And he is, is one of those people that's always talking about, hey, I want to gain t- 10 more yards. I just, if I gain 10 more yards, I'll be such a better player. And I said, well, how are you going to do that? Um, would, you, would you go my route? Would you subscribe to a, a theory and try to understand concepts and try to improve within that? And literally his answer is, no, I would never do that. I just want to keep experimenting with stuff until I find something that works for me. And then maybe I'll stick with that until it doesn't work anymore. And then I'll look for something else. I was like, dude, that sounds exhausting. Um, and, and I know because I'm a tinkerer and I used to be one of those folks. But I think that's one of the reasons why um, I can play well still without practicing much and why golf is enjoyable for me because I don't have to sit on the range and try to find uh, random stuff to work on for that particular day. It's just like, okay, well, I know I want to get my body angles right. I know I want to set the club in this position. I know I want to turn um, kind of in this direction. Uh, and, and, you know, and that's that's basically it. So, uh, so many people out there are just kind of searching, trying to hit on the right thing. Uh, and I think if they committed to a direction, um, handicaps across America would, would go down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if only, if only, right? That's that's the biggest problem out there is everyone wants the quick fix. They'd rather buy the $500 driver. You know, they'd rather take one quick lesson and then argue with the instructor about, you know, well, this this isn't giving me 20 yards right off the bat. I'm like, well, it's a, it's a process, dude, like anything in life. You know, unless you hit the lotto, you're not going to get rich overnight. It's the same thing with golf. Yeah, I, I don't I don't understand the the theory that, that – that, uh it goes along with that. It just, it, it doesn't make sense to me anymore. Um, but there are so many people who do it and it's a, it's a sickness, man. It's, it's too bad, but uh, that's just the way that the the industry is at the moment. So, well, it keeps, it keeps the golf equipment industry, you know, the, the big OEMs in business um, and they will, and it keeps their advertisers in business too. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's, it's big money, dude. For sure. Hey, well, Ev, I can't, I can't thank you enough. And, and listen, like seriously, we're going to have to have you on again because I, we didn't even get to talk Southern golf and kind of Southern golf architecture. And, and as a, as a boy who moved from, you know, the mid Atlantic down there, I think you have a really 
kind of good perspective on, you know, mid-Atlantic golf compared to Southern golf. And it seems like you've played across the country as well. So I definitely want to have you on again and kind of chop it up over those subjects as well and, and, and see where your game has progressed and the, you know, your social media presence has progressed in the future and kind of what lies ahead for you. Thanks so much, Dan. Yeah, this has been really fun talking to you and uh, would love to be back and talk a little bit more Southern golf. Um, so just before we even get out of here, give people, um, you know, kind of the details on where they can find you online and in social media space. Yeah. Um, all of my Instagram um, posts are, are through Golfing Down South, uh, which is is my handle. And, um, you know, I've had so many great conversations with, with people over the last year, um, you know, how their golf games are progressing, where they're playing. Uh, all that sort of stuff. So I'm here for it. I love the golf community and it's been really fun for me to get engaged with, uh, with so many folks, including yourself. So thanks so much for having me on. This has been a, it's been a blast. Fantastic. All right, people. So either get busy golfing or get busy dying.